welcome to another episode of the Semper Virens Fund podcast, an audio foray deep into the natural and cultural history of California's Santa Cruz Mountains. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Masters, Director of Communications at Semper Virens Fund. In this episode, we explore the epic life of pioneer conservationist and feminist Josephine McCracken. At the turn of the 19th century, McCracken became an indispensable voice for redwood preservation. Her activism inspired the women's network essential for the successful 1901 campaign to create Big Basin Redwood State Park. McCracken was also a leading figure in the San Francisco Bay Area literary scene. She authored a collection titled The Overland Tales and was a close friend and contemporary of such luminaries as Bret Hart, Mark Twain, and Ambrose Bierce. Late in life, McCracken also befriended and mentored some of the biggest female stars in the burgeoning movie industry. Mary Pickford, Zazu Pitts, and Beatriz Michelena all made silent films in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Join historians Tracy Bliss and Randall Brown as they convey how this remarkable woman overcame major obstacles including escaping a homicidal husband in New Mexico and losing her Santa Cruz Mountains home to fire to become a full-time journalist and advocate for women. Along the way, they will also reveal much about the founding of the Semper Virens Club and some common misconceptions regarding the establishment of Big Basin Redwood State Park. But before we let Tracy and Randall get started, a few words about Semper Virens Fund. Since its inception in 1900, Semper Virens Fund, formerly called Semper Virens Club, has raised and leveraged $50 million to protect more than 34,000 acres of redwood forest and watersheds in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Semper Virens Fund works by purchasing land outright, purchasing conservation easements, and purchasing trail easements. Like many land trusts across the country, Sepervirens Fund's mission is fueled by individual contributions, foundations, nonprofits, and green-minded corporations. Government agencies help out too in the form of grants and partnerships. If you would like more information about how you can support Sepervirens Fund's mission to help connect, protect, and restore the Santa Cruz Mountains, visit us at sempervirens.org. That's S E M P E R V-I-R-E-N-S dot org or call 650-949-1453 extension 207. And now, I give you Josephine McCracken, pioneer environmentalist and feminist. To begin with, we'll let Tracy Bliss tell us what makes Josephine McCracken's life so remarkable. Josephine wore so many hats. For a woman whose most of her career happened in the late 1800s, all these different adverse experiences she had, her multiple talents as a writer, as a networker, ultimately all came together um, and were just essential in saving the Santa Cruz Mountain Redwoods. So let's start from the beginning. I understand that Josephine was born in 1839 as Josephine Wumpner in Petershagen, Germany. 
the daughter of a military officer. Josephine was born in what is now Germany, but was then a number of smaller states. And her father um, was involved in the army. Um, he was in command of a castle and a, and a um, surveying crew. And so she was actually born in a castle um, in Germany. And it is actually still there today. If you um, wanted to stay there at the bed and breakfast, uh, it's, in, it's in Petershagen, which is, um, overlooks a large river. And so she lived there until about the age of nine when her parents, realizing that there was a lot of uproar in Germany, decided it was best to go to America. And then they, um, as many Germans did, settled in, New in St. Louis, um, found the, a nice sense of community there. Her father had some work as an engineer. Um, he worked on one of the very first railroads. And this gave him an opportunity to make some good political connections. He did decide not to teach at West Point, though. He was very tired of being in the military. Unfortunately, he died young. Um, Josephine was about 14 when he died. Um, so her mother raised her and her other sister. She attended a convent school, which is actually a pretty good education. It was, it was almost a college level. And then at the point where she was just sort of entering society, the Civil War broke out. And St. Louis, because of its location, um, became a, a center for the Union Army. And so here you have this community with a whole lot less women than men at that point. And of course, you had a, uh, somebody with a military background. So she was quite excited by this and got caught up in the social world that was around the military world. And so she would attend balls and you know, just kind of socialize a lot. And then she fell in with um, a captain of cavalry a man whose name was, um, well, it, was, it wasn't actually his real name, but he went under James Clifford. And uh, he was a very dashing cavalryman. And they got together, I believe, it's hard to say exactly when, um, but as the war was ending, they, they were married. And his problem was that the army was being downsized big time. And, and so the only way you could really keep a position as an officer was to go lobby at the headquarters in Washington, D.C. So that's where the two of them relocated to. And um, there was a whole, so again, it was a social world, but it was political. So to, to get any kind of influence, you had to um, visit, the, you actually would visit the president. And she had an open door to Lincoln because one of uh, her father's friends from St. Louis was one of Lincoln's closest associates. So she met him probably in the month before his assassination. So then, um, as they were waiting, it took about a year and a half for this to actually work out. So then Josephine was able to get a job at the United States Post Office in Washington, D.C., which, because of the war, um, needed helpers of any kind, and so they employed women. And so this was actually how she, she supported her family while, or her husband, rather, while they were waiting. So finally, they, got, they won their appointment. Um, however, this was one of those be careful what you wish for situations because where they were assigned was actually the farthest point in the West, practically. Um, the, because the war had ended, but the, they had decided to make war on the Native Americans instead because they had taken advantage during the war. And so this large caravan went out. Um, many wives, a lot of the office, higher officers went with their wives. Um, and they, they went across the plains and gradually dropped everybody off at their different posts. And so 
as they got closer to the destination, there were less and less people and then less and less women. Finally, when they got near their post, which was on the New Mexico-Arizona border, uh, Josephine was the only woman left in, in the crew, and they, they crossed the, an area known as the Journey of Death. So this is a truly brutal area. For 300 years, people have been dying out in this waterless expanse of desert. This place is so godforsaken that years later, the U.S. government would choose it as a great place to detonate atomic bombs at the Trinity site. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the circumstances that Josephine found herself in? Um, it's, it's desert, but, but it's actually um, very rich in minerals. So the, one of the reasons the post was there was to protect the miners from the Apaches. And so it's a, it's a real desolate area, but it, and, and quite beautiful for that reason. No, she, was, she was really entranced by the scenery there. How unusual was it for a woman to be at a post like that? She was the only officer's wife in the outpost, and she was one of two women. The other woman was a washerwoman who was married to one of the soldiers. So in addition to desolation, isolation, Apache, uh, Josephine also had to deal with some really violent internal situations as well, correct? Yeah, well, as, of, and when she first arrived, she was the belle of the ball, obviously, because she was the one lady in town. All the officers essentially would take her on tours, set her up. But the more this happened, the less her husband liked it. And he was not the most subordinate guy to begin with, and he wound up having a drinking problem. So he was getting in increasing trouble. And then his relation, their relationship got really ugly. That he, um, he was insanely jealous, and he decided that she was at fault in some way for his problems. And so he, would, he basically made her a prisoner in their tent. He, she was only allowed to leave on a horseback ride with him present. Um, otherwise, she basically was not allowed to go out even. And that got worse and worse. And he, he would threaten her. He would choke her. Um, she, wear, she would wear high collars to avoid people noticing the bruises on her neck. You know, and so this got worse and worse. And finally, she had an opportunity to go to Santa Fe um, in, in the course of maybe trying to help, in the guise of trying to help him, let's just say. And so she seemed to have gotten away. She, she took a, uh, they gave her an ambulance, which was um, just a, way, a nice way of going across the desert as opposed to riding. And... As and they almost, you know, they, they got across the worst part of it. They almost arrived in Santa Fe, and then all of a sudden, her husband, who was supposed to be under lock and key, rode up on her favorite horse, which had been run to the point of total exhaustion. And then the horse collapsed and died. But meanwhile, she's back in the clutches of her husband, literally. And why was he supposed to be under lock and key? Um, insubordination. He'd, he'd actually hit an, a superior officer. And, and they were, people, she wasn't telling anyone, but they were suspicious that something was going on. Her friends in Santa Fe actually really tried to help her, but he couldn't, he, he kept her like right with her, him the whole time. She never had a chance to really tell her story. So the long and short of that was she wound up going back to the base, which was known as Fort Bayard, by the way, um, with him. So they get back at the base and things continue to deteriorate. Um, the officers have taken his gun away, but he winds up grabbing a hatchet and using that to threaten her with. 
one night she wakes up and he's standing over there thinking of where he can split her head open. So finally, um, she was rescued by her friends and with the particular help of the washerwoman who wound up volunteering to distract her husband while he was engaged in eating his lunch. And they snuck her out of the tent and, and hid her away in the enlisted man's area. And what's kind of a neat part of the story is that then when the husband went to go after her, first of all, he, the washerwoman had to escape. She barely escaped without being harmed. And so when the husband came after her, the enlisted men all rallied around her and basically prevented him. They, they put an armed guard over her. Hmm. And so then she was able finally to get away. With the, and she got to Santa Fe and then was in the care of these, the officer's wives then took care of her. One of the general's wives made sure she was safe and got away. So that, that episode ended. <laughs> that sounds like a horrific ordeal. I imagine this had a huge effect on her for the rest of her life. Oh, it was, yeah. She was, uh, you know, she had all the symptoms of what we would call PTSD for about a year. She had a terrible time adjusting. She wound up, her family had moved to California. Her, her brother, sister, and mother were all over there. So that was where she gravitated to. But her first job she had as a, as a teacher in a school she couldn't hold because she was just so upset. Anytime she saw a white horse in the street or, you know, and she was getting threatening letters still. So it took her a while. And then finally, um, her mother was kind of fed up with her sitting around the house and said, Josephine, you know, you, you tell good stories, you know, you, you write well. Why don't you submit an article to the new publication, um, Overland Monthly? In, in San Francisco. And so she did. And the editor uh, of the publication, Bret Hart, um, really liked it. It was an article about the post office, and he wanted more. So she had a job. And where was she living at this time? Um, well, at that point, she was li um, her mother lived in San Jose, but she wound up, Josephine did wind up settling in San Francisco. And so she became part of the Overland Monthly Circle. And one of, one of the things about Bret Hart was that he liked working with women. In fact, I think he preferred it. Um, he didn't get along that well with Mark Twain, ultimately, for instance. Um, so he had a very congenial staff. Um, one of the other important people in the, on the staff was Ina Coolbrith, who was a poet. And she had as much to say as what went into the paper as anybody. And so Josephine wound up not only writing for the publication, but as part of the staff for the publication. She would read articles. She would edit articles. Um, she was just very helpful in, in that context. And so she wrote for a lot of different types of things. She wrote about Army life in particular, but she also did travel pieces um, from a woman's point of view. She did some short stories. Pretty much whatever they needed done, she, she would adapt to. I want to comment on the writing that she was doing at this point in time. It, it was very well read and people loved it, but by today's standards, it was incredibly florid and just superlatives in every other line. And actually, I find somewhat hard to read today. But that will change over time. But as she, when she starts her career, um, she's a very flamboyant um, writer. And, um, and it'll be interesting to see how that focus on journalism changes over time and her style and what she's writing about also changes over time. 
Was it unusual for a woman to be contributing so directly to a publication at this time? That was actually, a, the post-Civil War era was, was a really good time for women to be beginning in the magazine industry. I think most of the magazine readers were, in fact, women. And so there was, particularly in San Francisco, they were welcome. And many of the people who Josephine encountered in her years in the magazine world in San Francisco would later be her friends and help helpers in the Semper Virens movement. That um, Laura, Laura Lyons, who later became Laura Lovell White, is a good example. Um, Carrie Stevens Walter was a poet who wrote for some of the same publications that Josephine did. Um, it, it, was, it was a real social network, and again, a real opportunity for women. And Josephine never got a rejection slip. She was very proud of that, that, that her stuff was very marketable. You know, and, and I think, actually, in terms of the criticism, the one thing that she found most difficult, and, and actually the one thing that it makes the reading difficult, is that she was working through some of her problems, particularly in the, in the fiction. A lot of her fiction is about women with abuse. There's one woman who she has red hair and she gets grabbed by the hair violently and the rest of it. So I think there was trauma beneath her fiction more than there was anything else. The travel pieces are travel pieces. And yes, verbose, but she's probably getting paid by the word just like Dickens. You know, so the finally, as her as she went on with her career, Bret Hart left. Um, so she was really no longer connected directly with the overland. But he did help her find other work. He made help her make connections. And so she had ready markets for her work. And finally, as she went forward um, and got farther away from the experience with her husband, and then she, and particularly when she found out that he was dead, she, her fiction suddenly focused on the, on the real heart of her, her old problem, that she actually wrote very specifically in a fictional voice about what had happened to her, very specific. And so this, whether it was good writing or not, was really good psychology. It, it totally helped her get loose of that. And I think it kind of almost put an end to that period of her writing because, I mean, it was, it was climactic. How did her husband, James Clifford, finally meet his end? Um, well, eventually he went back to his first wife. He was a bigamist, and um, he wound up in New Orleans with his, I think he had a couple of kids, too. And he, he just, his career didn't go anywhere, of course. He finally got court-martialed. But yeah, he died about 1880, and that was a relief. Once she, once she actually had that verified, it, you know, it does seem to have changed things. What else do we know about uh, Josephine's relationship with Bret Hart? Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting relationship. She was very proud of the fact that he was, she was one of the last people he kept in touch with. He, he was kind of a moody guy, and burned some bridges behind him, but she and he always corresponded. I understand there's some speculation that Bret Hart and Josephine McCracken's relationship was something more than just literary. Uh, however, why don't you tell us more about Joseph McCracken, uh, the man who had become her second husband. Uh, he was a successful prospector in Arizona, right? Had been a miner for many years, prospector. Uh, had adventures you know, with the Native Americans, to say the least, and wound up in the mid-1870s discovering one of the largest silver mines in, near Prescott, Arizona, which was known as the McCracken Mine. And so when he arrived in San Francisco, he had just sold, his, sold out the business for half a million dollars, and so he was quite comfortable that way. 
And again, she was sentimentally attached to Arizona, so that was another thing they obviously discussed quite a bit. And then um, as she actually waited to marry him until her mother died. It was, it was about like less than a few months after the mother died. But what they had decided to do was to, uh, he, he didn't particularly like her writing. Uh, he, he really kind of wanted her to be a wife. And so she had become fascinated by horticulture. And, and so they decided to buy a ranch near the summit in the Santa Cruz Mountains, um, quite a heavily wooded area that was being developed. Um, and, and so they decided that they would go into the ranching business and do what a lot of people in that neighborhood were doing, which is raising grapes. Can you give us a more specific idea of where off Summit it was in the Santa Cruz Mountains? Ah, it, it's near where Burl School is. Uh, it's right on the Santa Clara, Santa Cruz border, but it's on the Santa Cruz side. The, the nearest physical feature is Loma Prieta, which, which she talked about considerably. But a lot of the area was still um, owned by logging interests, and, and this, of course, will later play a <laughs> play a part in the story. Let's just say, right. you know. So, so yeah. So they wound up growing grapes. Um, it was a very congenial community for her because there were, there was many Germans in the neighborhood, including their next door neighbor who was a German winemaker who actually bought their grapes from them. So it was it was a good relationship and. They would ship their grapes out by railroad. They had a very good reputation. And so this became her new career, was the ranch, the Lady of Monte Paraiso, or Mount Paradise, as they called it. Okay, so Josephine's in her 50s now. She's remarried. She lives on this beautiful ranch in the Santa Cruz Mountains. What does her life look like in the 1890s? There's this decade of the 90s, the 1890s, and Josephine, it, it would appear that like life has finally been really good to her, that she has this great network of friends, that she's part of the California Women's Press Association. It just is really important to note that the California women did have this press association. Um, and. Um, it did not get them the right to vote in 1896, right? But they were still these organized female writers. She was writing agricultural articles. That had sort of become her focus, and it meant, it meant that these different threads of her life had come together as she was growing grapes, writing articles about agriculture, and constantly expanding her network. And um, one of the friends that she made was an agricultural or an animal artist named Andrew P. Hill in San Jose. Just, I'm giving that as an illustration of the many ways that Josephine would constantly be expanding her network. Um, so then what happens is, and this is in 1899, um, we, we are so aware of the fire hazards all the time. Um, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And this particular fire um, was burning all of the area around Josephine's ranch and house. And um, it burned to the ground, her, her house, their ranch, and their huge grove of redwoods. Now, the interesting piece of the fire burning story is that the German family next door, who actually were making the wine, he actually used wine to put out the fire. 
And so that was kind of this cool, hip piece of the story. Um, but for Josephine, the devastation, yes, you know, her house was burned to the ground, but and so were the grapes. But those were replaceable. What was irreplaceable was her beautiful, ancient redwood grove. So her trees that were over a 1,000 years old have all been burned, I mean severely burned. They are not going to do what redwoods sometimes can do and um, you know, heal themselves. So Josephine decides at that point she has to do something about this, that you know, if, her, if her grove can burn, what are we doing about the rest of the redwoods in the Santa Cruz Mountains? So she then contacts her friend, Bret Hart, who's now living in London, um, and he gets her connected with Worldwide Magazine. So Josephine wants Worldwide Magazine to do a story about the fire, about them putting out the fire with wine, but mostly to show off that these incredible redwoods um, that are so unique to California um, are, are really special and endangered. So she enlists her friend, Andrew P. Hill, who is a brilliant photographer, to be the photographer for the story. And she sends him off to Welch's Grove. And Welch's Grove is now what is the central piece, the core, or what we call the Redwood Loop at Henry Kyle Redwood State Park, just to give you a visual. Um, so she, that's where she sends off A.P. Hill to get pictures to show this is what beautiful ancient redwoods look like. Now I'm going to take a little deviation here and t say something about um, uh, the Welch's Grove because it's very significant in terms of the role of women in this story and especially in saving the Santa Cruz Mountain Redwoods. It was, um, it was Anna Welch, Mrs. Welch, in 1866 that first saw this grove of, beautiful grove of ancient trees that miraculously had not yet been logged. It's hard to imagine that, but by that time, if you looked around Felton and the surrounding area, um, an intense amount of logging had already occurred. And so there was this one big beautiful parcel and she um, got her husband, Joseph Welch, to buy it with the um, commitment that they were going to preserve this for posterity, 1866. It's fabulous, and this woman had this vision. So off Andrew P. Hill goes to Welch's Grove with his camera, and he's gonna capture these pictures. So he's there taking pictures of the giant and other pictures that tourists are, other trees tourists are quite familiar with, and all of a sudden, um, the Welch's younger son, Stanley, who is the proprietor, says, you absolutely cannot take these pictures. I sell postcards here, and I'm, I'm, this is my land. These are my postcards. And by the way, the Welch's were charging admission to get into the park. And so this, it wasn't just that there was this issue that he didn't want people sort of moseying in on his turf to be capturing pictures, it, it, what was also a problem, I'm sure, to Hill, was that it, there was admission just to get in to see the trees. And it wasn't cheap by this point. It was, it was 25 cents by this point, wasn't Randy? They bumped it up from 10 cents. Hadn't they bumped yeah, it up from 10 cents? 
so 25 cents in today's market is, is um, you can't take a family there. And so Andrew P. Hill was furious when, um, when Stanley Welch demanded his negatives. And um, Hill managed to keep at least some of his negatives because they later made it into Worldwide Magazine. But the point was, is Hill was so angry over this, he leaves and on the train back to San Jose, um, he vows that these, these redwoods at Welch's Grove need to be made public. They need to be publicly owned, they need to be accessible, and anybody should be allowed to take pictures of them. So Hill, I mean, he gets Josephine involved, and Hill goes back to San Jose, and he gets the San Jose Board of Trade. You know, that is the precursor to today's Chamber of Commerce. He gets the Board of Trade all excited about this, that we need to make the Welsh's Grove area into a state park. He also gets Josephine quite excited about this, and Josephine um, gets so excited about it that she writes a famous letter to the Santa Cruz Sentinel. And, um, you know, she has a great relationship with Duncan McPherson, the publisher of the Santa Cruz Sentinel at this point. So even though it's so interesting when you look at the artifact, even though it is a letter to the editor, it, it looks like an article, okay? And um, so I wanna re just read to you so you'll get a sense of the tone of this. I beseech the people of all our state to unite their voice with mine and make it loud enough and strong enough to reach our lawmakers so they may secure to the ownership of the public one of these wonderful redwood groves that are the admiration, the envy of the whole civilized world. So that's, that was this tone of Josephine's letter. But it's now 1900 and women have lost the right to vote in California. And Josephine, with lots of pressure from her husband that she should be at home being a farm wife, she doesn't feel that she can sign the letter with her own name. We all know about the many women, you know, George Eliot, I mean, all these pseudonyms that women used um, because they thought that they wouldn't be taken seriously if they used their own names. So Josephine did not use a pseudonym, but what she did do is she signed the letter an old Californian, something she would very much later regret. But that's what she did. She signed the letter an old Californian. But it was picked up. Santa Cruzans loved it. They thought this was great. So Josephine has her article, her, her letter to the editor, has gotten lots of play in Santa Cruz, but of course Josephine doesn't get any credit for it because she didn't sign her name. So meanwhile, Andrew P. Hill with the Santa Cruz, San Jose Board of Trade has a letter that they send to the Santa Cruz Board of Trade. There's a great botanist, Dr. Anderson, on the Santa Cruz Board of Trade. My great-grandfather, Frank Bliss, is on the Santa Cruz Board of Trade, and these men are completely committed and have been to saving the Redwoods. It's just there wasn't a time or a place to do this. So they get this letter. It's great from Santa Cruz, San Jose Board of Trade. But they're astonished that the San Jose Board of Trade wants to make Welch's Grove a public park. Um, because they know the Welch family, they know the Welch's family's commitment to conservation, 
a preservation of these redwoods. And they are saying, why would we put state money into something that is already being preserved? What really needs to be preserved is 14 miles up the road, the very, very remote Big Basin. Can you explain this misperception that Santa Cruz wasn't as involved in early efforts to preserve the redwoods a little more? Well, it's a great question, and I think it's because it makes, for some people, the story too complex. It's easier to say that Andrew P. Hill led the movement to Big Basin. He was an important part of the team, but he definitely was not the leader of the team, which you're going to hear about. And Randy's going to amplify on this Santa Cruz's long-term commitment to Big Basin. Yeah, I feel that this, this is one that gets missed a lot, that... Um, Big Basin is the most remote stretch of the old growth forest. It was a very hard place to get to and actually still is today. The Santa Cruz people, uh, originally there was a guy in San Mateo, his name was Ralph Smith, who was actually a friend of Josephine and some of her friends. She knew him. Uh, he initiated the movement, but unfortunately got killed by somebody who he defended in the newspaper. But they, even the Southern Pacific at one time, um, Leland Stanford um, and, and Timothy Hopkins, who's a forgotten name, but was also very influential in the park movement, did at one point consider making it a park on the Southern Pacific land, but Huntington didn't really go along with that. So by the early 1890s, there was a movement within Santa Cruz, and it was sponsored by both of the major newspapers, the Sentinel and the Surf, to save Big Basin and to set it aside as a park. And, and they, incur, they the mayor of Santa Cruz went up with a delegation to, to explore it. Um, it was a place that they knew about if they were into hunting anything, <laughs> including grizzly bears. Um, so they had a long term. And, and then the, uh, John Muir's movement, the Sierra Club, um, picked it up thanks to William Dudley, who was a professor at Stanford. And he specifically wanted to save the coast redwoods. And he knew that the Big Basin was the place in the local area that he could do that. Okay, so back to Santa Cruz. So the Santa Cruz Board of Trade says, okay, we know we have to have San Jose on our side. We can't possibly save this big forest by ourselves. So the Board of Trade goes to their go-to guy. And their go-to guy is William T. Jeter. And William T. Jeter had just finished his term as lieutenant governor. He has also been the head of the Democratic Party in the state of California. He's been the first Democratic mayor of Santa Cruz, the first Democratic district attorney. He has every connection, and he's totally beloved. Now, this is a really significant piece of the story, and it goes back to your question of why Santa Cruz doesn't get credit. Because Will Jeter, what made him so successful as a 60-year politician in Santa Cruz was that he, he bent over backwards not to take credit for things. So everybody trusted him because he never upstaged anybody. He'd go behind the scenes. He'd make deals happen. He was a brilliant, brilliant lawyer. He was president of the Santa Cruz County Bank for 30 years. He knew everybody. And he also had the backing of the logging industry and the loggers of the San Lorenzo Valley were his major constituents because as a Democrat, he was for the little guy. So 
the Santa Cruz Board of Trade goes to Will Jeter, and he helps them, and they draft a letter back to San Jose, and they go, yes, we absolutely need to create a public park of ancient redwoods, but we do not want to save Welch's Grove. It's already saved. We need to save Big Basin. Now, here's another huge misconception, and the misconception is when was the start date of the, the um, Save the Redwoods movement? Um, the real start date, and um, it wasn't when the Semper Byron's Club was formed. That is a huge, momentous event, but much had to happen before they could form the Semper Byron's Club. So what happens is Jeter connects with old friends of his, and especially um, the first ever president of Stanford University, David Starr Jordan. And it's very significant that David Starr Jordan himself was a botanist, and his best friend and roommate from Cornell, as Randy has already mentioned him, was the head of the botany department, who was William Dudley. William Dudley had spent the last four years surveying, doing all kinds of field research, taking Stanford students out to Big Basin. At this time, there is one expert in the world on Big Basin, and that is William Dudley. And he never gets mentioned, except in our writing. Um, and he deserves so much credit, because he had the data. I'm glad you mentioned your writing. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your research and where it has been published. Well, the document, I mean, it's interesting. We spent three whole days in the Stanford um, Special Collections um, doing a thorough search on William Dudley. And, you know, hats off to Stanford. But um, our, our major article on this topic can be found in a book called um, Logging and Conservation in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a Split History. And that's available at the Mountain Parks um, store at Henry Cal Redwood State Park. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Um, but it's called Heroes and Heroines Saving Big Basin. But anyway, so back to the story. Um, so, so Jeter gets this, brings together all these key people at Stanford University on May 1st, of um, 1900. And the significance, the visual significance, now A.P. Hill is, has already become the artist and photographer for this group of people, even though they don't have a name yet. And so the picture that depicts this is out on the Stanford Quad. And you see all these palm trees in the background. Even though this is about saving the redwoods, everybody knows that piece of Stanford, where you have all the palm trees. So you have this group of 14 individuals. You have, you have David Starr Jordan. You have William Dudley. You have the Santa Cruz Board of Trade. You have Will Jeter, who's a foot taller than anybody in the background. And then you have the San Jose contingent. And you have one woman in the picture, Carrie Stevens-Walter. Carrie Stevens-Walter is a very successful publisher of the movie called, I mean, excuse me, of the magazine called the Santa Claren, a travel magazine for the whole Santa Clara area. She's hugely well-respected. She's involved in all these different women's groups um, and very, very well-respected. But she's also a single mother of three, her husband having abandoned her when he went off to, um, a, a, you know, to make his fortune in the mines. So she's, she's involved there. Now, as Andrew P. Hill is taking the picture, who is right next to him but Josephine McCracken, 
So again, just like Josephine wasn't going to put her name on the letter, Josephine was not going to be in this picture, even though she's very much there and she's very much part of it. A little bit of amplification, because this is something that kind of gets misunderstood, that um, the groups that were summoned to Stanford, and it was, it was more than just the 14 people, um, were representatives of groups. And this is actually going to be true as well of the first Sempervirens meeting, that uh, Josephine, for example, is there as a representative of the Pacific Women's Press Association. Um, they have various representatives from all the universities. There's somebody from Berkeley, there's somebody from Stanford, um, Santa Clara. So there's this coalition of groups. And what's significant about Carrie Stevens Walter and um, her friend Louise Coffin Jones is that they are there to represent the San Jose Women's Club, which has stepped forward. And so here, here you've got these fish and game people, you've got the universities, but then there's one significant women's club that's leading the way. Okay, so Jeter is chairing this meeting, and of course, he brilliantly has Dudley show the maps of Big Basin. And how significant are those maps? Because the maps are showing that the loggers are right up to the edge of Big Basin. And visually, you're seeing it on a map, but just imagine if you saw it in real life. And so this group on May 1st, um, 1900 says, yes, we are going to save the Redwoods. And they each have, they each have their roles that they're going to play from, from this point on. And so Jeter and David Starr Jordan, I mean, they're really going to be, Jeter especially, he's the strategist. He's the behind-the-scenes leader of this movement. Um, the um, the Carrie Stevens Walter and Andrew P. Hill, they are going to be doing publicity. Um, and but basically Andrew P. Hill has to be the photographer documenting everything. And without him, we would not have this incredible record of documentation. Um, so off they go. And the Santa Cruz Board of Trade, however, quietly, their absolute immediate goal is we've started a movement but nobody's ever seen Big Basin, right? So we've got to get people to Big Basin. So immediately they put it all together and they say, we're going to have an expedition to Big Basin um, in the next few weeks, and we are going to bring bigwigs from big political, big, big political bigwigs um, into this movement. And so they invited key people. They invited people like... Um, Reed, who was a supervisor from San Francisco, um, key politicians and people with who were major in the fish and game world, um, to go on this expedition. And I just want to say something about San Francisco. At this point in time, San Francisco County has 250,000 people. Santa Clara County has 60,000. L.A. Is, is just a dot on the map compared to the power base that's in San Francisco. So San Francisco really was the power and wealth hub of California at this period in time. So the, as the um, Santa Cruz Board of Trade is organizing this expedition of key people, what Jeter is doing is he has been working to make sure that all these disparate lumber interests that are in the are up right next to Big Basin, are basically consolidated. I don't mean that they've merged, but that they can speak with one voice. 
because Jeter knows from his work with government, how brilliant was this, if people even thought about this today, that in his work with government, that the state government couldn't possibly deal with all these conflicting entities. So they have to be one voice. So he goes to his good buddy, his client from the bank, and one of the leading lumbermen in the, the San Lorenzo Valley, Mr. Boulder Creek, a man by the name of Henry Middleton. And I think you've asked me the question before, and I think it's a great question. Why in the world would a key lumberman want to save Big Basin? Well, Middleton was, he loved Boulder Creek. He had, he had the hotel in Boulder Creek. He had the um, major store in Boulder Creek, dry goods store. And it was like, this would be great. This would be great for the Santa Cruz Mountains. This would be great for Boulder Creek. Logging and conservation, logging and preservation can exist hand in hand. And you can be sure Middleton got a lot of pushback from some in the logging industry, but he was willing to stand up and to be, um, you know, I'm on this. So Middleton said, I'm going to outfit and make these expeditions possible for here on in. So yeah, I think, I think one of the easiest ways to understand the original Semper Virens um, encounter in, in, in the middle of May is that it was essentially a tourist expedition that you had a couple of guys from Santa Cruz who were the hosts, and, and Middleton, who was very much the host, and provided all the transportation, as Tracy said, and, and the food. And so th this was a way for these San Francisco people, um, several, of, and, the, and the sportsmen were very important. People forget that, that the, the people who care about the fishing and the hunting were, were very big on this. So it, it really, it's like, okay, come on, let's, we will show you tourists from San Jose and San Francisco and the rest what we're talking about. So um, there is one mythology out there that Andrew P. Hill was the leader in this big basin movement. And he, he definitely was leading the way in photography and all these great pictures that he took. But it was the Santa Cruz Board of Trade and Middleton that were setting up the whole thing, taking them to the proper sites, making sure that they could catch 250 fish in one day and be totally outfitted to do it. And then we have all of this documentation. Well, what? okay, so now we see the women and there's two women on this expedition. Of course, Josephine's husband is not gonna let her go. And Will Jeter's wife, um, my great-great-aunt, is not going to let him go because he had ill health. And so these two key Santa Cruzans are on the sidelines, but they'd both been to Big Basin. So here we have it. Well, they get to Big Basin, and they're just ooing and aahing. Unfortunately, the weather was great. And there are all these spring flowers, and they see that this is like this incredible paradise. But the women are writing round the clock. So Louise Coffin-Jones, who has been a, um, uh, a missionary, um, and she was, a, as a missionary, she had been a great writer, and she's writing around the clock. Carrie Stevens-Walter is writing around the clock, which really was a brilliant move. It, Hill left behind some really good photos of them touring. They're, they're looking up at the big redwoods and walking around the trails. And so finally at the end, they got together and said, okay, well, we should really organize this. You know, and um, so they got, they met in, the story is, and I believe it's true, that they met in the tree. There's this one very large tree in the front of the big basin, and they got together and decided, okay, we're going to, we're it. We're going to, we're going to form the Semper Virens. We're going to name it, obviously, after the trees. 
Um, and so you had your, the, they decided that the head would be the political guy, um, Charles Reed, the supervisor. Um, I believe that Kerry Stevens was then the secretary and, and Hill was named as the official artist. That was his role. I think I made a mistake earlier and said San Francisco had a population of 250,000 at this point. Actually, it was 350,000. Um, and boy, did this group of people um, get the importance of that. Because right then, as soon as they said, we're going to be called the Semper Virens, ever living, um, you know, for the ever living um, ancient redwoods, um, that they started naming their vice presidents right then and there. So, of course, um, Josephine was probably the first vice president named and Will Jeter, but then they start doing the rich and famous of San Francisco. And you have people like um, uh, William Randolph Hearst's mother, Phoebe Hearst, a major philanthropist known in every social circle in San Francisco. You have... Um, you have Stanley Dollar, um, who was head of the Dollar Steamship Company. <laughs> Many of these people may not have seen the Redwoods, but Reed had the confidence, these are people that will be totally committed to this cause. So, so San Francisco and the power base is covered. And people like William Randolph Hearst, who have so much power in the news industry, when Carrie Stevens Walter two weeks later, gives her a four-page article with all of these pictures from Andrew P. Hill of the glories of Big Basin, including the 270 fish that they caught in one day. He then writes an editorial that says, if we don't act and act now, we can expect the whole Santa Cruz Mountains to be nothing but chaparral. So the, the, the men in behind the scenes in this story in terms of a statewide movement were all of these newspaper editors that when these women's articles like Josephine's articles, Louise's articles, Carrie's articles got on their plate, they were all very eager to write editorials supporting them. And Josephine, she also wrote an article for Overland Monthly, correct? Um, and by this time, Josephine's writing, I love it. She's gotten very, she has a little bit of her florid edge still there, but she's really talking about the Redwoods. And in these articles, she has no problem using her name. But this is making her husband quite unhappy that she is spending so much time on the Redwoods. And he even says, I'm tired of having Redwoods for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So is the campaign to establish Big Basin Redwood State Park covered in your book? Yes. In um, uh, Conservation and Logging in the Santa Cruz Mountains, we go into great detail with plenty of references in exactly what happened, um, including the president of Santa Clara, um, Santa Clara College slash university, getting all the Jesuit priests to get their constituents on board. Everybody was getting on board. This was a statewide movement. And that's where these women's groups become so important. Let's look at the big picture here. The big picture of this is California women have lost the right to vote, but the suffragists are still at it. There are all these other women's groups. They're the Daughters of the Golden West. There's the DAR, you know, Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, there are so many different women's groups the temperance union. But oftentimes they've been at cross purposes. But guess what? Now 
we're saving the redwoods, all these women groups have the same agenda. Um, and women who had, had been totally into their garden clubs are now saying, we are the moral guardians of nature. And so they could unite with this common cause. And I love to say, well, they, they may have lost the right to vote, but they weren't going to lose their trees. So fast forward after all kinds of things, but especially Jeter being the negotiator for the Semper Virens, and Jeter wore both hats. He was the negotiator for the Semper Virens, and he was also the negotiator for the lumber people. But the, all of these legislators totally trusted him. So they get the legislation that is finally passed to the governor's desk. But the governor, um, Governor Gage, it's, he's from L.A. Everybody's seen the movie Chinatown. And L.A. has a competing bill on the governor's desk to bring more water to L.A. Now, on the face of it, more water to L.A., is that more important than saving redwoods? I, I don't want to answer that question, but the, um, the, the poor governor is just besieged. Jeter has all of these representatives from all these different constituencies in the governor's office. Um, Dudley has organized all the academics. Everybody is there. All these women have come in. The Semper Virens are, have done a fabulous job of organizing and I, I want to go back to what the Semper Virens did here, but they've done this fabulous job of organizing. And so what you have is the dilemma for the governor. The state coffers are low. Who, who what is he going to do? They can't sign both bills. So um, the daughters of the Golden West in L.A. have mobilized. His, they would be his constituents if they could vote, but their husbands can all vote. So... Every minute, one of the members of the Daughters of the Golden West sends a telegram to the governor, says, send, sign the Redwood Park Bill. They had already sent a petition to the legislators actually mentioning um, climate change. I mean, saying that the Redwoods, the decimation of the Redwoods is negatively affecting our climate, even though the term climate change wouldn't be around for another 50 years. So... Um, they were completely mobilized and diligent about it. But interestingly enough, all of these people who are lobbying the legislature are giving these great reasons to save the Redwoods. But these telegrams that are coming in, they're saying, just because. Save our Redwoods just because. So after several hours, the governor just gives up and he goes, I have no choice. I have to sign the Redwood Park Bill. Now, interestingly enough, his constituents in L.A. said that if he did, they'd vote him out of office, and that's exactly what they did. Wow. And, and actually, just to kind of remind everybody how much of an issue this was, the legislature had agreed to set aside $250,000 to buy the park. And in, in modern money, that's way more than $250,000. So it really did have a major impact on the, the state government at that point. And it took quite a while, it took another year, fast forward, to actually settle the deal because there was so much money and they wanted to make sure that they were getting what they had paid for. But this is where Jeter and Middleton worked together to keep the thing alive. It was a series of options that expired, but each time it did, they renewed it. And so that it was always there to have. So I understand that the first president of the Semper Virens Club was actually a woman. One of the things that I just love about this story is that if you look at the social context of women not 
getting the right to vote for another decade, um, of everything being so gender segregated in terms of all these men's clubs. I mean, we think of all of the, you know, the Ivy League schools with all of their men's clubs and, pardon me? The Bohemians. The Bohemian Club, all of these male fraternal organizations, secretive, women knew, could know nothing about them, and then the women had all of their auxiliaries to those or women's groups of their own. But there was no real coming together in clubs. And the Semper Rirens, from the get-go, from the very get-go, men and women were considered equals. Now, in terms of the numbers um, of vice presidents, it, that's not reflected. But the women, in terms of the power of their voice and the effect that they made and their leadership roles, were absolutely equal with men. And that is so groundbreaking, and it's just a fact that is not given enough, nearly enough, um, play. So um, Charles Reed, as the first president, he brought a lot of prestige, but he had his job as the supervisor in San Francisco. So the first like real elected president is a woman in 1902 is um, Laura Lovell White, who had been a journalist. She'd worked um, you know, she'd had articles in Overland Monthly, and she had worked very hard with John Muir to save the Calaveras Redwoods. And um, that, was, that was so significant that these men who were involved were totally supportive of this idea that men and women had equal roles in the, the environmental movement. That later does not become the case, and that's a deviation from this story. But later on, I mean, when we're talking 15 years later, 20 years later, when male politicians see how having an environmental record is so politically advantageous, women get taken out of the record. And, um, but the, the, the record shows so clearly how much these women then continued to write about this. Carrie Stevens Walter continued to write about it. Um, Josephine continued to write about it. But the, uh, the success of the Big Basin campaign was really just the beginning of her political activity, right? So Big Basin, it's so important to get the real timeline. Big Basin officially opens in June of 1904. They had to do all these negotiations. They had to get the park ready. Um, and they had to make campgrounds for people. And so there's this hugely successful opening. Um, no cars yet, but cars are just around the corner. But in September, there's this massive fire that actually burns for almost three weeks. Dudley was right on it. He was helping the fire crews. Thank goodness for Dudley's knowledge. But the fire was devastating. And with that, the... Um, the the warden, the superintendent, um, who was in charge at that point in time, he hires a contractor to remove the dead redwood. Well, everybody knows that redwood, when it's partially burned, it can still grow, it can heal itself, and so it has to be truly dead in order to remove it. But this particular contractor saw the value of these redwoods that were only partially dead and that the, that the heartwood was still um, extraordinarily valuable. So he started cutting 
all kinds of redwoods and taking them out. And I've even been told that they erected a little shingle mill um, in the middle of Big Basin, even after it was a public park, um, in order to make massive use of this um, pilfered lumber. So now Randy's going to tell you what Josephine does about this. Actually, in a lot of ways, it was a reprise of her original um, Save the Redwoods letter that um, she had heard a rumor, or somebody reported to her that this was going on in the park. And this had been going on quietly for at least a year. This is now the middle of 1907. And so she mobilizes the Ladies' Songbird Society. She mobilizes her newspaper connections and starts to question what's going on. And, and of course, being in a, a political type of political and profitable situation, she wasn't. They weren't getting straight answers. There was there was definitely a certain amount of disinformation going on. There's a guy in Boulder Creek named Trout, who, who she always used to refer to as that fishy guy. <laughs> you know? And so um, finally, she go, she reorganizes. She contacts pretty much the same core group of the Sempervirens: the uh, William Jeter, Andrew Hill. Hill runs out there with his camera and, and starts getting involved. And finally, there's another mass meeting of the Sempervirens, which hadn't been they hadn't done that hadn't had to do that for several years now. And so they reconvened and relobbied and finally stopped the damage, you know, and it successfully. And I think in this case again, Josephine was the one who raised her voice. She also became a pretty fierce advocate for animals, right? Well, after the park was really established in 1902, at about that time, she became involved in another movement, um, which was to protect the songbirds and the wildlife of the forest. She was, she was a great animal lover. You know, she always had pets of some kind or another. And so she then used her social connections in Santa Cruz to organize a group of women. They were specifically women. It was the Women's Songbird Protective Society. And she was the leader and the spokesperson. And... Um, that became one of her major causes, is to protect the birds. She actually uh, went out to Henry Cowell Park and told what's now Henry Cowell and convinced Stanley Welsh to post uh, signs preventing people from shooting the birds. So she was very good at that. Then, you know, she would, she enjoyed the fact, she would come out a couple of times to celebrate the big basin. She was out there camping with the Sempervirens. And this is now 1904. But she had to rush back because her husband was in pretty bad health. And so uh, one thing led to another, and he finally died in, at the end of 1904. And the ranch had really never recovered its prosperity after the fire. And so his death put her in a, in a very bad spot financially. And so she now had to make some choices about her life. She really couldn't stay up at the mountains and be a rancher. She is now in her, I'm going to say, let's see, 60s. So he now is dead, and she now has to figure out what to do next. Fortunately, she had been become a regular correspondent for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. And so they were very supportive of providing her with something to do. And so she finally decided, okay, I'm going to move to Santa I'm going to sell the ranch, move to Santa Cruz. And she was then offered a job writing as a reporter for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. And I think, I'm not sure at that point that she was the world's oldest reporter, but she would become that. So rather than being a fiction writer or, any, or anything else, she now was writing as a reporter. And one of the things that she does is she chooses these prominent Santa Cruzans like Will Jeter, 
um, like Frederick Keene, and she writes these portraits of, or even uh, of, of the Cowell family. She writes these portraits of their land. And so like Will and Jenny Jeter, she does this wonderful article of how exquisite um, Jenny Jeter's garden is and how these were ecologists before their time. And so she creates these, vi these written pictures of, of the environment. So this sense of her commitment to the beauty of the environment came through in her poetry, it came through in her writing, and now she, as she would make herself a full-time um, journalist for the Sentinel, they constantly, this constant commitment to the beauty of the environment was coming through all the time. Well, then another one of the roles that she took on when she came to Santa Cruz um, was an expansion of her love of animals, which she then became the local agent for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And one of her friends um, in the Songbird group happened to be the wife of the judge. So the judge wound up appointing her as a deputy that, he, that she then carried around a badge. And if somebody was beating their horses or abusing their dog, she could step in there and actually threaten them with arrest. And her, her, great, her biggest accomplishment, literally, as um, head of the SPCA enforcement was to protect the life of a circus elephant who was going to be put to death because the elephant was old, you know, and, and was going to be electrocuted, you know. And so Josephine stepped in and said, no, no, come on, and wrote about it and managed to stop it and save the elephant for at least another year. So that, that was a proud achievement. <laughs> you know, and so then she had found a nice niche. Um, one of the things that she did, I mean, as Tracy points out, she had strategy. She, she did write about the rich and famous and... She also would help promote things. She, she did a lot of promotional work for the boardwalk. Or I'm calling it the boardwalk, but actually that's accurate because it was built in 1906. And she worked to promote the beach and Fred Swanton's various enterprises. And she became involved in uh, housing development up near La Viega Park. And she, her work was such that her friends who were running the development gave her a piece of land to build a house on. And she, meanwhile, was living in a rented place. She still hadn't really recovered financially. But it turned out that there were n just numerous people within the community who were willing to help her out. You know, Middleton gave her the lumber. Um, Henry Cowell provided the lime for the basement. Harry Cowell at that point. Uh, so, and they had, they had fundraisers at the, at the casino at the beach to you know, build Josephine's house. So... Finally, in 1909, she really did have a permanent place to live and a roof over her head that was secure. And that was really thanks to her friends in the community. And she was quite proud of that. So how does Josephine McCracken get involved with some of the, the biggest Hollywood starlets of her time? I love this piece of the story because Randy has such a fabulous background on um, movie making, um, especially in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, I just think it's important to note that um, Randy didn't just come by this accidentally. Um, his major professor at Wesleyan, um, uh, Janine Bassinger, um, she's one of the leading experts in the history of film, and that's who Randy studied with. So he brings this incredibly rich perspective, and that perspective helps to understand this piece of Josephine's. It's really the last piece of Josephine's life. And it brings together the preservation of the Redwoods, movie making in the Redwoods, 
And what I think is extremely important is this theme of women at this period in time so supporting, nurturing, and encouraging each other, which is exactly what happened in the Redwoods movement. Now, also significantly, when women lost the right to vote in California in 1896, um, actually um, Santa Cruz was one of the counties in which overwhelmingly they voted for women to have um, the right to vote. So now that it's 1911 and women get the right to vote in California, um, it's kind of a new era with the League of Women Voters and other causes. And Josephine now makes this pivot I mean, it's not necessarily a pivot, but this supporting, of course, you know, these are still famous or to be famous people, but it's the way that Josephine goes around supporting these, um, these women with Hollywood aspirations and Hollywood fame. Well, of course, this is, this is actually the very early period of Hollywood. One thing that's kind of fun about this is you have this lady in her senior period of life um, all of a sudden embraces and becomes a spokesperson for a new technology that one of her duties as a reporter has always been doing drama work and then promoting the beach so that in 1911, a movie company comes to Santa Cruz. She's now in her 70s. She's now in her 70s, but they come, they come and film the 4th of July parade and they film the beach. And so that's, she's, I think, the Sentinel's first film critic. And she writes, in, here it is, and you're liable to be in it. Fred Swanton is in it. <laughs> so that, that movie company then um, is the first to actually make a movie in the Redwoods that I know of. Um, they come out to the Cowell Park. Um, Harry Cowell, who is now the, the son, uh, is in charge. And he is an animal lover. And he's particularly fond of oxen, which he's kept even though everybody else is moving to trucks and trains. And so he said, well, you'd like to make an authentic movie. Well, OK, I'll lend you some oxen. You know, and they wind up staging a big um, wagon train scene later on up at the UCSC area. So unfortunately, that was a short-lived adventure because the director um, who was leading them there got, a, got it shot to death in the course of trying to finish one of the movies by a crazed um, employee. So that kind of knocked that out for a bit. But Josephine had the buggle, I think, at that point. She knew about movies. So in the course of her work as a drama critic, um, one of the things she wound up covering was high school plays. And the, in, the one, in one particular year, this was right after the high school burned, the girls in the drama club to raise money for the new high school and to help get a bond passed to build the new high school put on drama productions. And they were a very dedicated group and talented group of women, young women. And the, the one who really stood out the most was a young woman named Zezu Pitts. And Josephine watched her work in various plays and really enjoyed her. She kept, oh, you know, this is a very funny person. You, you know, she does, and, and she can act, you know. And she had to do a dramatic role. You know, this is great, this is great. So Josephine was behind Miss Pitts. Then another movie company um, came to town. They were called the California Motion Picture Company. And their major goal was to do California pictures. And, and they were actually based in San Rafael, but they wanted to have authentic backgrounds. And so they were making a Bret Hart movie. This was in 1914, called Salome Jane. And um, actually, the star of the movie was a woman named Beatrice Michelena, who was actually the daughter of a Venezuelan. She's, she's half Latina. And uh, she was married to George Middleton, 
who happened to be the nephew of Henry Middleton, the timber baron. And he was fond of both of them. And so knowing that this was going on, he said, well, oh, you need a few more redwood scenes. Well, why don't you come out to Boulder Creek and you know, we'll provide you with some background. And they did. And the movie was a big success. And so it was such a success that they decided, okay, well, now we're going to make more Bret Hart movies. And so, um, but to do this, we really have to do it right, and so we should build a, a, a set. And of course, Henry Middleton was in the lumber business. So he said, oh, you know, I think we have some land that we could offer to you, and we can help you build this set. So they, they built a set. Um, the movie was, the first movie they made there was The Lily of Poverty Flat. And so the studio became known as Poverty Flat. And there were quite a few movies that were made up there. And so Josephine was called out to work on the story of the making of this movie. And her first impression, because of her love for Bret Hart, was that, oh, I don't know about this. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, would Bret approve of it? You know, and so she goes out there and, and realizes, oh, this is perfect. It, it, it looks like Bret Hart. It looks like the, the world that he imagined. And so she signs on big time. She writes articles for the Mountain Echo. She writes articles for the Sentinel. Um, when the movies come out, she promotes them. And the other thing she does, though, is she takes advantage of her new friendship with Beatrice Michelena and the movie people to introduce them to her young protege, Zezu Pitts, who comes out to a movie set for the first time out to Poverty Flat. So, you know, we've now established Boulder Creek as a, as a movie center, and we have this studio that we can go to. And so several of the major studios would come out. There was uh, Douglas Fairbanks, who was now a, a rising star, comes out to Boulder Creek and makes a movie. And then somebody who he was becoming romantically involved with, if not already romantically involved with, was one of the country's biggest stars, Mary Pickford, who at that point I think was known as America's sweetheart, uh, newly christened. And so she was extremely popular, and however, she had been doing just everything but normal roles. She was, she was playing Mexicans and Indians and all, both kinds, <laughs> actually. And finally, they said, well, let, let's get back to something more realistic. And so they hooked her up with Cecil B. DeMille, and they decided they were going to make a movie similar to a Bret Hart movie, which was called Romance of the Redwoods. And that was shot um, at Poverty Flat, at the Redwood Grove in Henry Cowell, and we believe also somewhat in Big Basin. So finally, um, after this, you know, many years, probably eight or nine years of several silent films being made at Henry Cowell and in Big Basin, um, the Romance of the Redwoods, oh my gosh, Redwoods are going to get to play themselves. Up to this point, Redwoods had played you know, forests in the Canadian Rockies, they had played swamps in in the South, but they'd never really gotten to play themselves. So it was all very exciting that Mary Pickford um, was gonna be in this movie where Redwoods got to play themselves. But what DeMille did, because it was of the storyline, he said that it was Calaveras County, which are the giant sequoias. So once again, the Semper Virens, the coastal redwoods, did not get to play themselves. Or they did get to play themselves. They were just miscalled um, because it said Calaveras County instead of Santa Cruz County. Santa Cruz keeps getting left out, even though it has a starring role. Yeah, actually, there's a, there's a story that illustrates part of that point, which is that they 
DeMille, before he made Romance of the Redwoods out here, uh, made a movie called Trail of the Lonesome Pine here in Felton. And they, the story is that the playwright and the book, this book's authors came out of the movie, and the one guy said to the other, well, at least they kept the pine. <laughs> and the other one comes back and says, no, that was a redwood. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is true that, that the trees stood in for trees. So um, Mary Pickford was very famous and practically at this point besieged by fans and reporters and everything else. And so when she came to Santa Cruz, she was originally reluctant to actually meet with anybody in, from the press. But then she had evidently heard about Josephine, and, or anyway, when she was approached by Josephine as an older lady to interview her, she accepted. And so the two of them met at the Casa del Rey Hotel and had to, just bonded. They had this long, wonderful chat telling each other stories of their lives. Um, and Mary Pickford was reminded of her grandmother, that, that, um, who did not entirely approve of her. Uh, you know, some of the movies that she was in early were not good. <laughs> but so, th so this was a, a, a really good experience for both of them. And Josephine wrote about it for the Sentinel and wound up telling Mary stories about Big Basin. And sure enough, they, were, they obviously were telling because Mary came back to Big Basin to make another movie in, in 1918. So she actually made two movies locally. You know, and, and so that was a good thing. And then the other thing that Josephine did through her connection with Mary Pickford was help convince her to hire Zezu Pitts as a supporting actress. And so actually Zezu's big breakthrough role came as a supporting actress in, in a Mary Pickford movie, The Little Princess. So this was you know, a win-win for everybody. And Zezu Pitts goes on to become a huge star in her own right. Star in her own. This really set her up. Um, she was kind of, she, she wished she could have been a little less comic. She was such a brilliant comedian that she couldn't really ever break out of that. But, but once she did, she was actually the star of a famous overblown movie called Greed, where she actually does get to play dramatic. And it's, it's an interesting movie, but definitely for film buffs. So in 1917, um, she was about to turn 80. Um, she wrote an article which actually got reproduced in various other places about how she was the, she thought she was the world's, or at least the country's oldest reporter. And she was quite proud of that fact. Um, obviously these were her declining years though. The, the worst thing for her was she suffered from blind, increasing blindness, which, which really got in the way of her work. You know, but her friends stayed with her. Mary Pickford would, you know, kept her on her Christmas list and would visit from time to time. Uh, Zezu Pitts came back, and there's a wonderful picture of the two of them together, you know, Zezu basically thanking Josephine for all her work. So as, as her career wound down, Josephine continued to focus on things that were near and dear to her. And actually, to, uh, in her very last article, she had really hadn't written a lot, she went back to the redwood cause, that there was a stand of redwoods called um, the Heen Valencia redwoods, which were endangered. And so Josephine's friends arranged to drive her out there, and she wrote a description of that and how important it was to save those redwoods. Where were those exactly? Near where her old home was, um, near Loma Prieta. It had originally been the Loma Prieta Company, I think. And... Uh, Unfortunately, F.A. Heen was dead, or she might have been able to save them right away, <laughs> because I think she, they were good friends. But her, uh, unfortunately, because of the fact that she passed away shortly afterwards, or, and among other things, probably, the, those redwoods were not saved. 
So uh, nearly 100 years after her death, what can we say about Josephine McCracken's legacy? In terms of Josephine's legacy, I think that obviously she was a woman that was very ahead of her time, but her authenticity comes through in everything that she did. She was conflicted about uh, the prominence of a woman. And later, when the Redwood Movement became so successful, she very much regretted not signing the letter to the Sentinel that got everything going. But she always was able to reinvent herself, and she continued to craft her skills, her writing skills, to meet the demands of the time. And you see this huge change in her writing over time and this ability to really capture very different um, genres over a, 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 a lifetime. And I love the fact that core her core value was this value of preservation and a pr particularly preservation of the natural world. So whether it was the redwoods or it was um, it was animals in the wild um, or whatever came to Josephine's mind and there was also when Big Basin was um, being basically raped by people taking out, um, lumber when it was already a public park, Josephine gathered together the Semper Virens all over again. So she really stayed so aware of what the preservation needs were and was vigilant. And that is our message for today. It is so easy to relax. It is so easy to think, oh, well, the Semper Virens have been around for almost 120 years, so we can all relax because everything has already been done. But Josephine shows us the example that it requires constant diligence. It, it's never um, that the battle is won and now we can relax. And I think living a life of great productivity till she was 80 and overcoming so much adversity um, probably was propelled by the fact that she did what she believed in. Wow, inspiring. Thank you so much uh, to Tracy Bliss and to Randall Brown for contributing their time and their knowledge and their research. Oh, thank you for having us. We love telling this story. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it's, it's as Tracy says, this is kind of a this is a certain kind of fun. <laughs> if you're interested in learning more about the history of redwood conservation, I suggest the 2014 book Redwood Logging and Conservation in the Santa Cruz Mountains: A Split History. Tracy and Randall have a number of excellent articles in that publication. It's available in the Big Basin and Henry Cowell State Park gift stores or on Amazon. Tracy and Randall also wrote an exceptional book about the history of Santa Cruz's Seabright neighborhood that I highly recommend. Hey, did you know that Semper Virens Fund will celebrate the 50th anniversary of Castle Rock State Park in 2018? For more information about the 50th anniversary of Castle Rock State Park, please visit castlerock50.com. That's castlerock, the numbers five and zero, dot com. And finally, I invite you to learn more about Semper Virens Fund and our 118-year history of redwood conservation by visiting sempervirens.org or giving us a call at 650-949-1453, extension 207. This has been the Semper Virens Fund podcast. I was your host, Ryan Masters. 
Our theme music, which you're listening to now, is called Tu Guru. It was composed and arranged by Heath Proskin and performed live by Herod, Payne, and Proskin on January 31st, 2016 at the Pierce Winery in Monterey. Check out more at heathproskinmusic.com. Until next time, may the forest be with you. <laughs>